We shall turn now to the Word of God and to the book of the Revelation and the fifth chapter. And uh, we may read from just the beginning of the chapter. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. We come to a unique chapter in the canon of Scripture. If I were to go through the congregation this morning and I'd ask one simple question, what is your favorite chapter in the Bible? Probably most would have some particular chapter that would have a personal significance and importance to them. And you might say, well, I love Psalm 23. I love Psalm 100, uh, Romans 3, Romans 5, Romans 8, John 3, John 10. And we would have maybe various reasons for saying, I love that chapter and I love a particular part of it because it has been blessed to me and I've received light from it. I've felt liberated in my spirit, encouraged, or whatever, because of the content of that chapter. I suspect the very few of any would say, well, you know, the chapter 5 of Revelation, to me, is a very, very precious chapter. I suspect very few would say, that's my precious, special chapter in the Word of God. Now, that's perhaps because we simply don't give enough attention to its content. This is one of the most majestic chapters in the whole of Scripture. Here we have heavenly royalty brought before us. Here we are seeing with John the coronation of God's Son as our Redeemer glorified after his humiliation the inauguration of the glorious one of whom we were singing, reading and singing in the second psalm. This is truly a glorious chapter. And if we don't see the glory in it, it's because we're not reading it correctly. Now, in order to approach it aright, to understand its content, and correctly, we need to remind ourselves of two things. First of all, what this book is all about in general. We go back to the first chapter. The first verse, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. We must 
Remember that and keep it before us no matter where we go, whatever verse we turn to, whatever chapter, we must keep this in mind. It's all a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now for the believer, what do we read? Unto you who believe he is precious. He is precious. Well, will this book then not be most precious? The revelation of Jesus Christ, my precious Savior. Won't you be praying, blessed Spirit of God, show me my Savior here. Open up this revelation to me. Make him as I read of him, as I discover more of him. Make him more and more precious to me. But the second thing that we have to keep in mind is this. After the seven messages to the seven churches, when we come to chapter 4, what do we read there? After this I looked, and behold a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard talking with me said, Come up hither. What happens then? And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne. Behold, a throne. So the focus is upon the throne. But remember, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we dare not disconnect the two. The revelation of Jesus Christ in relation to that throne. So this is what we must keep in mind. Jesus Christ the glorious Redeemer in his relation to this throne that John sees. Now, when we come to chapter 5, as I said, uh, we come to what had been referred to so often by the prophets and indeed by the Savior himself and had even been prayed for. You go back to John chapter 17. What do you hear the Savior praying? Father, glorify me. Glorify me. How? With that glory that I had with thee from the beginning. Glorify me with thine own glory. That's what he's praying. And here in this chapter, we have John seeing the answer to that prayer. The Father glorifying, exalting his beloved Son. When we go back to the epistle that Paul writes to the Philippians, we have there in chapter 2, the apostle speaking of the humiliation and then the exaltation of the Savior. We read in verse 8 of Philippians 2 that being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore? Because he did this. Wherefore? God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And what else? Of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue, we need to keep these 
facts before us when we come to Revelation 5. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because he endured the humiliation, now he is exalted as a prince and as a savior, as Paul writes elsewhere. Going back to the first chapter of his epistle to the Ephesians, Paul there is telling the Ephesians that he prays for something in particular regarding the believers in Ephesus. Verse 18 of chapter 1, that their eyes, the eyes of their understanding, being enlightened. Being enlightened. That's what he prayed for, that they would get light, that their understanding would be enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his saints, of his inheritance in the saints. And what else? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us work? Now we must keep that in mind. He prayed that you, these believers would get light in this matter because it would benefit them spiritually that they would get light and understanding regarding his exceeding great power to usward, exercising exceeding great power for the church that Paul later in this very epistle refers to as the bride of Christ, the church, the bride of Christ, and working for us. Verse 20, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. You see Paul's emphasis, the power exercised for the sake of the church, to us word, poor, uh, benighted sinners, quickened by the Spirit of God, United with Christ. And now, he says, I'm praying that you will get more light in this matter. The exceeding greatness of his power, whom God has exalted. And he's exercising that power on your behalf for your good. And it's power that is above every other power of every other principality. Now we need to keep that in mind when we come to this chapter. This is what John is seeing. Remember his circumstances. Remember the purpose of this revelation to not only encourage John, but to encourage the afflicted church and the afflicted saints uh, with him at that time, and indeed the church in every generation. Now, looking at this chapter and focusing particularly on Jesus Christ and his relationship with this throne, the first thing that we will note is, and perhaps we should just mention it now, because John sees, verse 6, I beheld and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts in the midst of the elders stood a lamb. So in the midst of the throne is the lamb. Now, as you go through the book of the Revelation, you find reference after reference to this personage, this lamb. And when we come to the 
very end of the uh, book, chapter 22, where we're approaching its conclusion. What do we read? Verse 1, He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. The Lamb is in the midst of the throne, exalted to the Father's right hand. And this throne and all its power, all its authority, is exercised and shared by the Lamb that was slain from before the foundation of the world. Now, The first thing that we may note is the call to this throne. It is an awesome throne, an indescribable throne. Its majesty is so unique that the occupant and the throne itself can only, as we've emphasized, be made known to us in symbols. It's the only way we can understand the majesty and the authority of this throne. Now, what do we read? The invisible occupant of this throne. John says, I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne, a book. Now, we're not to think, of course, when it refers here to a book, we're not to think in terms of a book as you and I would commonly uh, understand it. It is as, in Ezekiel chapter 2, it's a scroll of a book. And that's why it's referred to as having seven seals. It is a scroll of a book. And its contents at this particular point are hidden and mysterious. None is able to know or understand the content of this book or this scroll that's in the hand of the uh, God who occupies this throne. It is written on both sides. Now, that was a common practice. John would have been aware of it. Uh, It was normal to write because paper, paphras, paper as it was then, would have been so expensive that very often then important documents would be written on both sides particularly if they were lengthy documents. Very often they would be sealed with, particularly if they were uh, documents regarding uh, decisions of courts or the ruling authorities, they would be sealed with seals and none were authorized to open them, but the proper recipients. One of the official documents that was again and again in Roman times sealed with seven seals was a will. When a will was made, it was witnessed by seven witnesses. And it was sealed by each witness. And here we have this scroll, and it cannot be otherwise than the divine will of the omnipotent God. And it's sealed with seven seals. And it's in the hand of the occupant of this throne. John says there's a mighty angel. I saw a strong angel. He obviously had a strong voice. And he is proclaiming with a loud voice. Now, 
in our Presbyterian procedures, when it comes to the ordination or the induction of a minister, what happens? The presbytery who's going to ordain or induct the new minister, what do they do? They appoint a member of the Kirk session. Usually he's required, often a The people won't probably know, but I know from experience, they'll often ask now, who among us has got the strongest voice? And then he will be sent out to stand at the door and make an announcement three times. If any persons have anything against the conduct or the person or the ministry of Mr. So-and-so, they must now come forward. I'm not quoting because I can't remember the exact words of the formula, but you know what I'm referring to. They are now required to come and meet with the presbytery and substantiate any allegations that they are prepared to bring against the minister who's to be inducted. Now here is a most important event. It is a unique occasion. It is truly a royal occasion. It is an occasion when God's own Son is to be exalted to a position above every other. He's to be inducted into the highest office in the universe. So a mighty angel stands and proclaims makes this announcement, this intimation. Now, it isn't exactly the same, nor in exactly the same context, but it will give us some idea of the atmosphere and the scene before us. Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? What's it about? What is the announcement about? The qualifications required, the worthiness required, the testimony, the reputation of the one who will approach this throne. This is what the angel is intimating. Where in the universe is there one who can now come to the throne and take this book and be seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Because the coronation, the inauguration, cannot proceed unless there is one worthy. Can proceed. And John is so affected by this that what happens? I wept much. It was a sad moment for John. I wept much. Why? Because it seems we're at a standstill. It seems... None are to be found anywhere who can even approach the throne. They're not worthy. They don't qualify. They cannot come into the holy, awesome presence of God and take this book. Oh, the angels that surround the throne, the mighty archangels, 
None are found who can come and take this book. And what else do we read? John is weeping because when the angel makes this intimation, he cries, who is worthy to open the book and loose the seven seals thereof? Now you will understand the what John is talking about. The scroll would have been in a roll and there would have been a pole through it. And as you would see, Jews even today in their worship, they roll the scroll out and they hold one end and they keep rolling it out. And as they read, then they roll back and they roll right through until they've come to the end of the writing. But you see, until one part is unfolded, the next seal cannot be opened. Therefore, there has to be absolute confidence that once that book is opened, every seal can be unsealed. There is a perfect knowledge and a perfect understanding of the contents so that we can proceed. This is the what is required of the one who will come to open this book. Now, why is John weeping? No man in heaven, my, my. No man in heaven, but aren't they all redeemed men in heaven? Aren't they all holy men in heaven? Aren't they all justified men in heaven? Aren't they all sinless, made perfect in holiness? Ah, they cannot open this book. Nor in the earth. Neither under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. They couldn't even look at it. Its contents are such. They cannot even look at it. They don't understand it. It's mysterious. It's beyond them. It is as majestic as the author himself, God. And no more can they look on this book than they can look on God himself. Now, one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. It's an amazing two words. Weep not. You will find... So often in the ministry of the Savior, those very words, weep not. Because so often, you see, last week we mentioned the fact the psalmist was aware that the Lord who is sovereign, knowing all things perfectly, holy, omniscient, The psalmist could say, he knows all my wanderings. Isn't that something? He knows all my wanderings. He has put my tears into his bottle. Did you wander this week? Did you wander spiritually? Did you wander from the Savior? You wander off into the world in your desires and your thoughts. He knows your wanderings. He can't be deceived. He knows how we wander. And the psalmist, you see, says, Put thy my tears. I weep when I wander. That's the mark of a child of God. They weep when they wander. And when they feel the heart growing cold 
and a wandering from the Savior, they weep over it. And the Savior puts the tears into his bottle as a memorial. Now tell us my wanderings. Now, he is saying that because he understands the omniscience, the perfect omniscience, perfect knowledge, most comprehensive knowledge of God regarding ourselves and everything about us. And oftentimes he knows and he asks the question and sometimes he says, Weep not. Why did the elder say to John, weep not? Because in reality, John had no reason to weep. Ah, John would say, but look, there's no one. The angels made the intimation and no one's able to come and open the book. And I just... Previous to this, was called up higher. And I was told, chapter 4, come up higher, come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And I was so encouraged. I've been viewing the churches. I've been considering their state. And I've been wondering about the future. And I was told I was going to be shown reality. The facts, the indisputable facts of the sovereign workings of God. And now, here's the book and it's sealed. And I'm weeping. Because no one is able or worthy to open the book. And I weep, but the elder said to John, weep not. You've no reason to weep, John. The book will be opened. You will be shown the things that are going to most definitely come to pass. You will be shown them, John. You go back to the ministry of the Savior himself, And you will see there in the gospel according to Luke in the chapter 7 and the Savior on more occasions than one speaks like this. Remember where we are. We're in the presence of God and of the Lamb and we shall see the importance of that very title shortly, but just remembering who he is, the lamb that John, you remember, John the Baptist pointed to, behold, he said, the lamb of God, the lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world, behold, the lamb of God, look at him, study him, follow him, learn of him. What is he say throughout his ministry in chapter 7 of uh, Luke's Gospel in the verse 13. As he was coming out of the city of Nain, he meets a poor mother with her dead son. No doubt she's broken hearted at the loss. Verse 13 of Luke 7. When the Lord saw her, He had compassion on her and said unto her, Weep not. Weep not. Well, if it were not the Savior, she might well say, Well, you're not in my circumstances. You haven't experienced my loss. This is my, I'm a poor widow. This is all the aid, the help, the sustenance I have. How can you say weep not? Have every reason to weep. 
Ah, the Savior says, no. Weep not. I am here. You see again in the chapter 8 of this same gospel and in the verse 52, (coughs) Jesus is uh, confronted with one whose daughter is dead. And there's weeping again because death brings sorrow and tears. And when Jesus comes to the mourning household, verse 51, he suffered no man to go in except for Peter and James and John and the mother and the father of the child. And verse 52, all wept and bewailed her. But he said, weep not, weep not. But they could say, but... We've experienced loss. This is a natural reaction. We weep and we've reason to weep. Jesus says, no, weep not. I am here. And again and again, how often we have wept, not realizing we really didn't have a reason to weep. Weep not, John. Weep not, poor widow. Weep not, grieving parents. Why? Because everything's under control. The glorious Christ is here. And what does the elder say to John? Weep not, John. Christ is here. That makes a difference. The glorious Christ is here. Oh, the angels are here. The redeemed are here. There are all kinds of persons and powers and intellects and reasons and qualifications and gifts and graces. Ah, but John, Christ is here. Weep not. Dry up your tears. He is here. What does John then see taking place? What does the elder tell him? Weep not, behold. John, you see, you can't see the real picture through your tears. How often... Haven't you known that? Even the little children know. If they're looking at an object and they begin to cry, they can't see properly through the tears in their eyes. The focus is blurred. The vision is blurred. They can't see properly. They can't see plainly. And the elder says to John, John, weep not. Dry your tears and look now. Look now with clear vision at what is before you. And what does John now see? He sees one as a lamb. And yet, how has he been described? Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah The root of David hath prevailed. He hath prevailed. Where no one else could prevail. Where no one else could possibly succeed. He's succeeded. He's prevailed. He's prevailed against all opposition. He's prevailed against every difficulty, every mountain of opposition, every form of it, he has prevailed, John. Weep not. Look at what is before you. The lion of the tribe of Judah. 
What would you, where would John's mind go? Way back to the Old Testament. Way back to Genesis. To what Jacob was saying about Judah, his son, the tribe of Judah. And then to Isaiah. To chapter 11. The root in the house of Jesse that would bring forth a glorious Messiah. Weep not, John. He's here. He's present. God has brought you, John, to see his coronation, to see his glorious, majestic inauguration into his office to execute his power on behalf of his church. Now, what does John see? Behold! Now, if the elder has just said to John, Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, what would you think John would be expecting to see? He doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. Two very different natures. A lion is a very different type of an animal to the lamb. And the interesting thing is here, the word that John uses, it's translated lamb, is not the ordinary word. It's a word that means a lambkin, a little tender lamb. You have the mighty strength and the power and the majesty of the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the leading tribe amongst the tribes, and also here you have the lamb. What does John see? He doesn't see the lion. He sees the lamb. What does that mean? Well, if nothing else, we should immediately see two natures in one. The majesty and the power of his deity. And then the grace and the meekness of his humility. God and man united in one person. Heavenly power and deity united with his human compassion and mercy and grace. The Lamb in the midst of the throne as the mighty Lion of Judah, of the tribe of Judah, and yet with all the tenderness that is going to make this throne, that now he will occupy the throne of grace. And Paul will write of the confidence that the people of God are to then come to this throne with, to come boldly to the throne of grace that they might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is a most wonderful occasion. Now, what happens whenever the elder says to John, Weep not, behold, (coughs) what is to take place now? Verse 7, He came... And took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. You see where the book is? You see where the scroll of the divine will and purpose of God is? It's in his right hand. Where is he to be exalted? What does Paul tell us? He's to be exalted to the right hand. He is to come to the right hand and take the scroll and open it out and reveal its contents. He must possess the qualifications and the qualities 
and the faculties to do that. And so what do we read? He came and he took the book. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb. They're falling down before the Lamb. And then what happens? A great song begins. Notice how it's described, verse 9. You know, people argue and debate about whether in the worship of God you should sing exclusively nothing but psalms or hymns or paraphrases or whatever else. And those who are advocates for singing hymns of any description, they will say, ah, but the church in the New Testament, don't we read, they sung a new song. Well, this new song has nothing to do with that. This is a new song. It's not been sung before because it's new. There never was an occasion for it to be sung before. You remember when Moses, when they came up out of Egypt, Miriam and Moses sang and the people of God sang because they'd been redeemed. And then... We have, you see, mentioned, as you will be aware, of the song of Moses and the Lamb. But here we're reading of a new song composed for this special occasion. Now you will be aware, it happens again and again throughout history, even to this very day. And some of you who are perhaps interested in music, and the great classics, you might be, for example, aware of the what's referred to as the uh, 1812 Overture, where we're all familiar with the great thunderings of the cannons as they come to the end of that classical composition. Why was it composed? It was commissioned to be composed to commemorate the Russian victory over Napoleon. And the same composer was was commissioned because of his gifts, writing outstanding music for special occasions. He was commissioned to write for royal occasions, compose masterpieces, for coronations and royal funerals and so on. And this still happens to this day. And someone will be commissioned, if there's to be a new king, crowned or queen, this composition is the new composition, the new song, the new music for the special occasion to mark it as a unique, special occasion. That's what we have here. They sung a new song. Because there's never been an occasion like this before. This is the new song. At the crowning, the exaltation of the glorious Redeemer. What's it all about? Well, you can see here the joining of all the forces in fulfillment of what we've already read from Ephesians and Philippians. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. What are they confessing? Thou art worthy. Thou art worthy to take the book. And to open the seals. Verse 
9, they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. Why art thou worthy? Because thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Where did he prevail to open the book? He prevailed in his obedience unto death. When in the garden of Gethsemane, he lay in that agony, wrestling in his holy humanity with the awful terrors that were before him. What do we see? One in complete submission to the Father's will. Thy will be done. And you see throughout his ministry, the Savior, and as John emphasizes much of it, emphasized the agreement, the compatibility, the oneness between the Father's will and his will. He constantly, he said, did not his own will, but the will of him that sent him. Thou art worthy. Why? Thou art worthy, for thou wast slain, obedient unto death, fulfilling the Father's will. And this scroll, this book, can be put into his hands because he agrees with every particle of its contents. His will is at one with it. There's nothing in that book that he disagrees with, nothing in that scroll that he is contrary to, nothing. The Father can put it into his hand knowing he has perfect confidence that he will execute everything that's in that book. Therefore, what do we hear? This great song. This new song. The heavens burst into song. And what do we read? They're singing John says, verse 11, I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. The redeemed church, the four beasts, the angels, Thousands upon thousands. Never has there been a choir like this. Singing the new song. And they're singing about the Lamb. And they're singing about the worthiness of the Lamb. And what are they saying? Worthy is the Lamb. They don't sing worthy is the Lion. But worthy is the Lamb, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, with the meek and lowly nature of the Lamb, led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth, because he would be obedient perfectly, to all the will of the Father. And they're singing here because there is one worthy, worthy to open this book, worthy to break its seals, worthy to reveal its contents and execute its contents. And what are they saying? They attribute seven 
uh, attributes to the Lamb as they sing. What are these? Verse 12, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive one power, two riches, three wisdom, four strength, five honor, six glory, seven blessing. Here you see the perfections. You see seven repeated again and again. It's the number of completion, the number of wholeness, the number of perfection. What are they saying? Here's the perfect lamb. Here's the one with all the perfections that are required to execute the contents of the Father's eternal purpose. And remember what Paul was telling the Philippians and particularly the Ephesians. He's executing this power and this authority on behalf of the church. His dear people. He knows everything. about. You'll see there's two particular attributes that are stressed again and again. Omnipotence and omniscience. You see uh, the uh, beast full of eyes. And you see here in this chapter, the lamb as it had been slain, verse 6, what does he possess? Seven horns. You go to the Old Testament, you go, for example, to the book of Daniel, and you have the various beasts appearing with their horns. You have the same in Revelation. What do the horns symbolize? Power. Power against enemies. Power to rule. The psalmist said that God had put his horn in the dust, destroyed his power, humiliated him. Now here is the lamb with seven horns. Power of the lion and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Ah, omnipotence to execute rule, omniscience to know everything, absolutely everything. What is Jesus? Tell us there, and uh, when he's uh, speaking in Matthew's gospel, there he tells us of the Father's knowledge of the needs of his people. Not even a sparrow can fall to the ground without his knowledge. A little insignificant, undervalued sparrow. wonder what the boys and girls would think. They came across a little dead sparrow lying in the garden or lying around somewhere. Would it occur? God knows where this little sparrow lies. He knows everything. And the Savior says in Matthew 10, verse 29 are not two sparrows sold for a farthing. They're so worthless. Get two for a farthing. And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. You think of that. The intimate knowledge. That God has. That he's even interested in our hair. Remember that. He takes an interest in our hair. And a young woman, an older woman, should remember that. Ah, my hair belongs to me. 
up to me. Well, Jesus says, your father in heaven happens to be interested in your hair. So you better keep that in mind. And if he says, through the apostle, that the hair is given to the woman for a covering, it's to be long as her glory. The father knows whether it's kept long or whether we've shortened it to suit the world. See, we don't sometimes pay enough attention to the knowledge of God and what God is interested in. He's interested in things that we quickly forget he's interested in. And you see... What the Savior says, you see the little sparrow, doesn't see, nobody's going to pay much attention to it, but God does. And he says he values you far more than many sparrows. He values you. That's why he's interested in you. You go over to the Psalm 38 with me just briefly, Psalm 38, one of these portions of truth that is encouraging when we consider what God knows. Psalm 38, verse 9. Lord, here's the psalmist. All my desire is before thee. My desire. Nobody knows about it. Whether it's a good desire or a bad desire, It's still before thee. My desire and my groaning, my groaning is not hid from thee. Isn't that something? When the poor child of God is groaning under a burden, sorely tried, ah, what does the psalmist say? It's all before God. He hears every bit of it. He understands it. It is all full of meaning to him. In the Psalm 56, we've already uh, looked at it or mentioned it earlier. The wanderings that the Lord is aware of are wanderings, are tears. He's conscious of those. He knows everything. He's omniscient. This is the one in the throne looking upon his people. Again in Psalm 69, you see uh, there in the verse (coughs) 5, and of course this is a reference prophetically to the Savior, but it applies to the Lord's own people. O God, thou knowest my foolishness and my sins, are not hid from thee. Thou knowest my foolishness. Do we ever acknowledge that? You ever told God at the end of the day, I've been foolish today. I haven't acted very wisely as a Christian. I haven't done what's honorable. I've been very foolish. I forgot God. I left the Savior out of my thoughts. I was desiring a lot of things I shouldn't have been desiring. And the things I should have been desiring, I failed to desire. This is the one who is taking the throne. And the song is of one who is worthy to receive power, Give him the power. Father, bestow the power on him. Exalt him. He's worthy. He'll execute that power right. He'll execute it for the good of his people. And riches. Riches to bestow and meet every need. He's worthy. 
He's worthy to handle the riches of heaven, worthy to be entrusted with all the riches of divine grace, to reach out to sinners, to give them that grace, worthy to receive all wisdom so that he will execute perfectly, righteously, justly all his works for the good of his people and him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and strength and honor and glory and blessing. What an, an occasion it is. My dear child of God, are you seeing here your Savior who will take care of you from that throne to your very last breath? He's got all the power and all the strength and all the riches and all the wisdom to look after you throughout this earthly journey because he's exalted to the Father's right hand. What an occasion John was seeing. What a song that new song was for that occasion. This is God exalting his son, the lamb in the midst of the throne, the revelation of Jesus Christ. May bless his word. Let us pray. Gracious and eternal God, we thank thee for thy revelation. We thank thee for the Christ of God. May thy people join this day in that new song, praising God for their Savior, for the care he takes of them, for the wisdom he exercises in his dealings with them. Oh, may we rejoice in that Savior this day, exalted to thy right hand. Receive his pardon, his acceptance for Christ's sake. Amen.